You are now listening to the March 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, A Sermon, and Respectable Sins. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. This is Justin Kong with Let's Read the Bible. Sometimes it is difficult for us to understand some parents' ways of showing love for their children. They grant whatever their children want, buy them whatever they want, and provide them with more than what they need. These parents believe that is showing their love for their children. Instead of thinking about if their children really need them, if they are good for them, and if the time is even right if they are good for them, A lot of times, they make the decision to provide them with things solely on if they are able to afford them for their children. They provide them with things if they can and do not if they cannot afford them. But Christian parents must raise their children according to the wisdom given from God. Even though parents gave birth to their children, in fact, all children belong to God. Because they are God's children, parents must nurture them according to the word of God. That way, when they grow up, they will continue in God's words and live with biblical values. If not, we will be shameful in God's eyes, both parents and children. Verse 6 from today's reading of Proverbs chapter 22 is a very well-known verse. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. If you have children, at what age should you begin to train a child in the way they should go? Assuming that they should be able to understand what you tell them maybe around 4 or 5 years old. The word children used in Proverbs chapter 22 verse 6 is nar. In Hebrew, it means newborn infants who are not even a few months old. They are babies who have not begun to understand the language of their parents and have no control over their own bodies. The Bible has instruction for our children even though they are as young as this. The Bible is telling us how important biblical teaching is for a person from birth to maturity. As a matter of fact, teaching is that much difficult if it is delayed longer and longer. If children begin to grow up apart from biblical values, it will be more difficult later to change the values they have developed on their own. Then verse 15 says the following, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. It is saying that since children lack maturity, they do not have the ability to discern good from evil. Because of this lack of maturity, they cannot make proper judgments and will have thoughts that are unwise and foolish. If we leave them be, they will carry out actions without being able to make proper judgments and will live unwise lives from taking unwise actions. That is why it is important for parents to teach their children right from wrong, good from evil. Children need to understand the difference between God's values and the values of the world. Parents must teach them the ways they must follow, and if needed, disciplinary punishments should follow. The Bible is telling us disciplinary punishments will drive those follies away, saying, The rod of discipline drives folly far from him. In other words, it is saying, Follies will come near without disciplinary punishments. Rather than giving our children all that they desire, I pray that instead, we will be diligent to teach them right from wrong, that we will discipline them to follow the right way and nurture the children that God has given us the responsibility of raising in accordance with God's words, and we will do this because we love them.
Let's read Proverbs chapter 22 verses 1 to 29 together. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. He who loves purity of heart, and whose speech is gracious, will have the king as his friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. The sluggard says, There is a lion outside, I shall be killed in the streets. The mouth of forbidden women is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips. That your trust may be in the Lord, I have made them known to you today, even to you. Have I not written for you thirty sayings of counsel and knowledge, to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. We just read Proverbs chapter 22 verses 1 to 29 together.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of McLean Bible Church. Today's topic is the beauty of faith in the middle of trials. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Let's hear from God. James chapter 1, verse 1 is where we'll start. We'll go through verse 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. All right, so let's get the context for what we just read, and really the whole book of James. So the author clearly is James, but we're not sure exactly which James this might be. Most people believe this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a leader, some say the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem. And that's important because when Stephen, who is the first Christian martyr, was stoned in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem was scattered into all different parts of Judea and Samaria and beyond. So James writes this letter to the 12 tribes. That's a symbolic picture of God's people from the Old Testament, now applied to the New Testament as the church, that was dispersed from Jerusalem and scattered as refugees away from their homes because of persecution. So just that context helps us understand why the first words out of the chute to these people who have been scattered as refugees is James saying, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And it's interesting, you look at the verses we just read, verse 2 and 12, serve as kind of bookends on this passage. Trials are mentioned here, and then you look back at verse 12, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. So this is clearly a passage about how to walk through trials. We all know what it's like to meet trials of various kinds. I read something once entitled, Life is a Trial. It's kind of long, but I think it's worth reading. So here it goes. A high school senior lives in tension. He is, at long last, king of the hill, the privileged one. And yet classes are long and boring. Homework is baneful. At home, he faces curfews and chores. 
He looks around and asks, is this what I've been waiting for all my life? There must be more. I'm tired of school, tired of books, tired of teachers. I'm tired of my room, my parents, my activities. I can't wait to get out on my own to do a thousand new things. When graduation comes, then my trials will be over. So our young man goes to college. He is free, but he's a chemistry major, perpetually in the lab and working part-time to cover his expenses. By his senior year, he has a serious girlfriend. They begin to think about marriage, but having been together long enough to be sure, when he gets a job in Dallas, 800 miles away from his sweetheart, who will be teaching third grade. Absence makes their hearts grow fonder. They work harder than ever to master their new professions, but they're lonely and tired of being apart. They decide to marry. Gazing into each other's eyes, they say, we will be together forever. Soon our trials will be over. The honeymoon comes and goes. They set up house in a small apartment. On his first day of work, he showers and starts to shave, but he can hardly see himself because the stockings draped over the mirror are blocking his view. And how she spends money, and she still expects him to demonstrate his love with flowers and dates. He thinks, what do you mean you want tokens of love? I married you. Why do you need tokens? Of course, he causes a few trials, too. At the table, he eats as if he were back at the fraternity. When he sleeps, he thrashes about their bed as if he is reenacting an Olympic decathlon. Eventually, they sort things out. That trial is over. Now they want a baby. But one year, then two years go by without success. And then just as they prepare to meet the physicians, she conceives. They say, now our trials are over. I will not recount the trials of pregnancy, the nausea, and mood swings. Let's travel forward eight months. They have a healthy girl. Mother and daughter leave the hospital and spend their first night at home. Their baby is in bed, and the parents lie down, saying, our marriage is strong, our baby is home. And they drift off to sleep, thinking, our trials are over. In an instant, they're awake. The baby is crying. Why? She's dry. She's not hungry. She's crying for no reason whatsoever. So the trials of parenthood begin. In every stage of a child's life, parents tell themselves, the next phase will be easier. When we can sleep through the night. When the baby can understand us and we can understand her. When we're done with diapers, then it will be easier. When they're old enough to go to school. When they become more independent. When they can drive so we no longer spend endless hours chauffeuring them to soccer games and clarinet lessons. Yes, when they can drive, then our trials will be over. When they go to college and stop fussing about curfews and we stop wondering where they are, they may never come in, but at least we won't know. Then our trials will be over. <laughs> Work is no different. Trials never end. Things never settle down. If the economy is thriving, the company is growing, and our work is respected. But there's too much to do. The trials are overwork and exhaustion. Or if the economy is cool, or there's not enough business, then income is down, and the job is in jeopardy. And then trials continue after retirement. We miss the camaraderie, the respect, the friendships at work. We have too much time on our hands. Health issues surface. We wonder if we laid aside enough money to fund our remaining years. From our childhood home to the retirement home, what's constant is that our trials are not over. Now, here's the thing. What I just read covers some of the most basic everyday trials. This didn't mention tragedies. Or a lot of other really heavy trials that come along the way. And it doesn't even mention the trials that come specifically because of following Jesus, which is the whole context here in James. 
Many, if not most of these recipients getting this letter were scattered from their homes as refugees. They were poor because they were Christians. Many of them were losing their jobs because of their faith. They were being taken to court by those who opposed them. They were being oppressed, all because they were following Jesus. All this to say, trials of various kinds is a loaded phrase with which we are all familiar. So what are we to do with this command from God? The whole book starts with a command to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy? That's the command? Is this some fantasy world? It sounds impossible when you think about trials in our lives. It maybe even comes across as cold or offensive. But it's not. I want to show you this command, starting in verse 2 of James, is a powerful picture of the kindness of God. And I want to show you that it is possible, that it is supernaturally possible to have joy, real, true joy, when you meet trials of all kinds. And if that's true, wouldn't you want that? Trials reveal a beauty in faith. So what does that mean? Well, let's start by understanding what that does not mean. That does not mean when you meet trials of various kinds, put a smile on your face and pretend like everything is awesome. And based on all the Bible, James 1-2 does not mean when the trials of life come crashing down on a fellow Christian, your first words to them should be, pure joy, brother. (laughs) Consider it joy, sister. I think about when Jesus was approached by Martha and Mary after their brother Lazarus had died. Even though he knew God had a good and awesome purpose in this that they were about to see just moments later, what did he do? He wept with them. 2 Corinthians 1, talking about the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so we might comfort others in their affliction. The Bible exhorts us to comfort one another, to weep with one another, bear each other's burdens. And as we do these things, so James says, count it joy. Why? The Bible says you can count trials joy because you know that these tests of your faith are producing something. You see that? It's really important. It's not that we have joy over a trial in and of itself. Instead, our joy is found in knowing what trials produce. And look at what they produce. They produce steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. So when we go through tests in our faith, we hold on to faith, there's an otherworldly endurance that's developed. Now, to be clear, there's an adversary in this world who does not want your faith to endure through trial. 
There is an adversary who wants to use trials in this world to destroy your faith. He wants to use hard days to leave you to lose hope. And if you let the adversary have a foothold in your faith in the middle of trial, he will take you to dark places. You will not benefit from letting go of God and giving in to the adversary in the middle of trial. But if you hold fast, trials will produce an enduring faith that is beautiful beyond explanation. First Peter 1, 6 and 7. Peter also writing to suffering, persecuted Christians. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you see that language? In this you rejoice, count it all joy, even as you are grieved by various trials when you meet trials of various kinds as the genuineness of your faith is tested and this testing when you hold on to faith you don't give in to the adversary this kind of testing these trials will produce a faith that is more precious than gold in a way that yields surprising joy So how do trials produce this kind of faith, this kind of joy in our lives? Well, let me show you back here in James. Number one, trials lead us to grow in the likeness of God. And I want to show you how this is not just the first purpose of trials in this passage. It's actually the ultimate purpose of our entire lives according to the Bible. So you've got to see this. Watch it here in James. This testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance. We've talked about that, but that's not where it ends. Let steadfastness have its full effect. So what's the effect of a steadfast faith? You will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that is the ultimate goal of our lives. Genesis chapter 1, man and woman are created in the image or the likeness of God. And man and woman have a perfect relationship with God. They lack nothing. The problem is, man and woman decide not to trust God anymore, and they sin against God. And the image or the likeness of God is marred in them, and their relationship with God is broken. And whereas they used to lack no good thing, now they lack many things. And this is where not just sin enter the world, but suffering and eventually death and trials of every kind. There were no trials before sin. Now they're trials in a world where every man and woman, so this is where we come into the story, every one of us sins against God. 
And the image or likeness of God is marred in every one of us. Our relationships with God are broken, and we lack many things, and we experience various trials that are inevitable in this fallen, broken world. Yet, the Bible is a story from the very beginning about how God loves us. And God pursues us. He doesn't leave us alone in this brokenness. Ultimately, God comes to us himself in the person of Jesus. And Jesus lives a sinless life unlike us. And then even though he has no sin to die for, he chooses to die on a cross to pay the price for our sins. And then three days later, he rises from the grave in victory over sin, Satan, suffering, and death itself. So that anyone, anywhere, no matter what sin has looked like in your life, if you will trust in Jesus and God's love for you, then God will forgive you of all your sin and restore you to relationship with him forever. And here's how this relationship plays out. This is the Christian life where day by day you grow closer and closer and closer to God. You're being remade, conformed, transformed into his image, into his likeness until one day that transformation will be totally complete. This is where the Bible ends. One day all who trust in Jesus will be fully restored to God, free from all sin, all suffering and death, free to enjoy God and each other forever in perfect, complete harmony, lacking in nothing. Amen. Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I'll see you when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That's the day I'm looking forward to, and I will be with you. So this is why we read what we read a couple weeks ago. We studied Romans chapter 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is working all things, including trials, together for good, for his purpose. And what is his purpose? That we might be conformed into his image and ultimately be glorified with him. 1 John 3 sums it up. Behold, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We're going to be with God, see God, and we will be perfectly transformed into his image the way we're made to be, lacking in nothing. Now, here's the deal. My mind goes in two different directions here. So first, for those of you who maybe you're not a Christian, I hope you are seeing the good news here that this world with all its trials is not all there is. I hope you are seeing that trials in this world reveal to us that things are not as they should be. They're not right. And whether you realize it or not, God has put inside of you a longing for another world where everything will be made right. You are not created to experience pain, heartache, loss, depression, 
cancer, aging, a body breaking down, the sorrow of family members or friends suffering or dying, and all the feelings and the emotions and the hurt and the heartache you experience in trials are coming from a heart that longs for more, that was made for more, where everything is made right with the one who made you. And trials will only be joy when they draw us toward that ultimate goal. I hope you are seeing today that God loves you so much. And God wants to be with you and for you to be with him, to help you in the middle of trials here and ultimately to lead you into perfect and complete harmony with him forever in heaven where you will lack in nothing. I hope you are seeing that Jesus endured the ultimate trial and died on a cross in love for you to make all of this possible for you and that you will put your faith in him. Amen. Which then leads to those of us who are Christians who have put our faith in Jesus. Because here's the challenge. Even for many of us as Christians, we forget that this is the ultimate goal of our lives. Closeness to God, likeness to God. And if we're not careful, we can start to live just like everybody else in the world, where the goal of our lives is to be successful in the world, to be comfortable in this world, to be liked by others in this world. We want to be smart, talented. We want a nice job, nice family that look us a certain way with kids or parents who act a certain way. And if we're not careful, our goals will be focused on experiencing this or that in this world, whatever it may be. And when that's the case, when trials come, we will never count them joy because they'll keep us from our goals. Which means, to follow this, this means that if we're going to be able to count trials as joy, we have to reorient our lives around an altogether different goal. If our goal is ease or comfort or success or certain circumstances in our lives, then we will experience no joy in trials. Instead, we will experience constant anxiety, worry, fear, frustration, depression, despair, instability, insecurity. As long as our goal is getting our circumstances the way we want them, then we will go up and down throughout our lives amidst the waves of trials in this world. But listen to this. If your ultimate goal is not to fix your circumstances, but your ultimate goal is to know and grow closer to God, then you can rejoice. Because no matter what your circumstances are, you will achieve your goal. Amen. And you will always, always be secure. And you will have strength no matter how weak you get. You will have a supernatural peace that surpasses understanding. You will have a hope 
that conquers all despair. You will have a love that casts out all fear. Why? Because you will have God himself more and more every day. And one day perfectly and completely, and in him you will lack no good thing. That's a good goal. God is a good goal. And trials will be joy when God is your goal. Do you see this kind of faith requires a radically God-centered perspective of life? We need to move on, but let me just say one more thing. Because this text doesn't describe all the specifics of how do trials lead us to become more close to God in the likeness of God. And we often wonder, God, why this trial? It doesn't seem to make any sense. But that's what's so interesting about this passage. Because this is, we don't always know the answer to that question. Well, why this? Why that? But that's the point of faith. Because we do know that in trials, we will experience this right here. They will produce steadfastness, will lead us to become perfectly lacking in nothing. We will experience growth in godliness in trials like we could never experience any way. And so we trust God. If that's where this is going, then I'm going to trust you to lead me there. That's faith. It's the beauty of faith. Superficial cultural Christianity doesn't get there. But that kind of picture of trust actually leads us to the second effect of trials that James highlights here. Trials teach us to trust in the wisdom of God. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like how he ends verse 4 saying, okay, one day we're going to be lacking in nothing. That's the goal when we're perfectly with God. But now, particularly in the middle of trials here, we are lacking. And what does he say in verse 5 that we're lacking now? If any of you lacks wisdom, huh? Why is wisdom the one thing we are commanded? So this is the second command in James. Let him ask. Ask for wisdom. Out of all the things we could ask for, and I should add, based on the rest of the Bible, there are many things we can and should ask for in trials. It's good to ask God for healing, for reconciliation, for resolution, for changes in our circumstances. It's right to ask for these things. But why above all these things, why ask for wisdom? Well, see what the Bible's saying here. There is a God who knows all things and sees all things and who's working, as we've seen, all things together for the good of those who are trusting in him. And not only is he all wise, but check this out. He does not keep his wisdom to himself. He gives it generously to all, anybody who asks, without reproach. What a great phrase. Nobody has to be afraid or ashamed or embarrassed to ask God for wisdom. Just ask God, and it will be given to you. That's a promise. It will. When you're walking through trials and you can't see straight, this is amazing. God says, I'll help you see. Just ask me. God, the ruler of the world and the creator of wisdom, is my father. And he's made infinite wisdom available to me anytime I need it. In anything. And not just to me. He's made it available to you. 
to anybody who asks. He says, I've got storehouses of it for you. Just ask me and trust. Let him ask in faith. Trust that I'll give it. No doubting. Don't doubt. If you doubt, you'll be like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. Double-minded, man or woman, unstable in all his ways. You see the contrast there? How faith in the middle of trial brings stability, while lack of faith brings instability. And to be clear, it's not that when we ask for wisdom, all of a sudden we become omniscient like God. Instantly we see and understand everything completely. No, we're not God. But God is saying very clearly here, I will give you the wisdom you need in the moment you're walking through. I will give it generously. Just ask me and trust me. And as you do, as you trust my wisdom, God says, I will personally lead you through. This is God's design. He is perfectly wise and utterly generous with his wisdom. And the more we walk through trials with him, the more those trials will teach us to trust his wisdom. I'm totally running out of time, so I'll start drawing these to a close. But don't miss what God's saying here. Verses 9 through 11, James starts talking about the lowly or the poor and the rich and how the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. These verses are reminding us, don't trust in the resources of this world. Do not look to them for safety, for security, for stability in this world. They will not last. They're passing, fading away. They will leave you empty. Specifically in regard to trials, money cannot solve your problems. Possessions, no matter how much you try to pacify your hurts with them, they cannot heal your hurts. The things of this world cannot provide what only the God over this world can provide. And trials lead us to joy when they remind us of the wealth of resources we have in God as the resources of this world are stripped away from us. Which all leads to this one. Trials drive us to live for the reward of God. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, when you hear that word crown, don't picture some gem-studded headpiece worn by a king or a queen. Most original Readers of this letter would have heard this word and immediately thought about a, a wreath that would be put on an athlete's head at the end of a race. That's the imagery here. Running a hard race and getting to the end as a victor, ready to receive a crown. Let's hear what God is saying to us is coming at the end of trials in this world life in the world to come. Life, eternal life with God that he has promised it to those who love him. To those who keep their eyes and their hearts and their minds fixed on him. This is the foundation of your joy, a love relationship with God himself. 
And in the end, for all who love him, you can rejoice in trials because you know what's coming at the end of this race. You can rejoice in trials because you know as you hold fast to your faith in the race, one day you are going to stand before God himself. God himself is going to take a crown of life. He's going to put it on you. He's going to wipe every tear from your eye and he's going to say for the first time ever in your life, all your trials are now over. They're over. They're all over. All the pain is over. All the suffering is over. There's no more heartache here. There's no more brokenness in this place. There's no more conflict. There's no more hard days. There's no more sleepless nights. There's no more loneliness. There's no more discouragement. No more broken dreams. No more depression. No more cancer. No more disease and no more death. No more despair here. There's just joy. There's just everlasting, never-ending, eternal joy in this place. That's what's coming for all who remain steadfast. So, when you know that's coming, then, brothers and sisters, when you face trials in this world, hold fast. Because the God who loves you will lead these trials to grow in his likeness will lead these trials to teach you trust in his wisdom. He will supply you with every resource you need in the middle of them. One day, his reward will be put on your head by him.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Respectable Sins. Hello, dear listeners. This is Terry, the host of Respectable Sins. We have been delving into Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate, exploring what sins we tolerate in our lives and how to deal with them. Jerry Bridges addresses sins that are often overlooked. These are sins not readily admitted as opposed to the sins that everyone knows and acknowledges. In simpler terms, he doesn't say, killing people is a sin, never commit murder, because everyone already recognizes that murdering is a sin. Instead, he focuses on subtle sins that people might not consider significant. These seemingly minor sins, if left unaddressed, can lead to more serious sins. One such subtle sin that we often overlook is lack of self-control. Do you consider lacking self-control as a sin? For example, lack of self-control might be reflected in being unable to stop eating when you know you should, continuing to watch TV instead of going to sleep, or procrastinating when you know you should get to work. Do you see these as sins? Most might think, well, those behaviors are not great, but I wouldn't call them a sin. You might think, if eating more, watching TV more, and sleeping more is considered a sin, what on earth is not a sin? Still, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 3, the Bible mentions that lack of self-control is how people behave during the end times when destruction is imminent. Further, Jerry quotes a verse from Proverbs 25:28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. This verse illustrates clearly that lacking self-control is akin to having no defense to attacks. In biblical times, city walls served as a crucial means of defense for the city. When these walls were breached, that meant the demise of the city. The seemingly impregnable city of Jericho fell into the Israelite army when its walls collapsed. According to Jerry, there are seemingly insignificant actions, if left unchecked, that can make us vulnerable to more severe sins. Lack of self-control, in Jerry's view, makes a person susceptible to temptation and easily conquered by sin, much like a city without walls. He explains that when we lack self-control, we become more vulnerable to committing more serious sins. For instance, someone who cannot control their speech may inadvertently open the door to slanderous or hurtful words. Jerry defines self-control as the ability to control or regulate desires, impulses, emotions, and passions. Simply, it means saying no when you should, not just in words but in actions. Then Jerry proceeds to make an important point. 
Just because someone exhibits self-control in one area, that doesn't mean they excel in self-control in all areas. People who achieve their worldly goals may exercise self-control in specific aspects of their lives. For instance, people conscious of their weight can dedicate themselves to exercise. They might display excellent self-control by limiting their food intake, resisting treats, waking up at set times, and persevering through workouts. However, that doesn't necessarily mean they exercise self-control in speech, other behaviors, or thoughts. Jerry asserts that for Christians, self-control manifests in all areas of life. That requires constant battle against fleshly desires. So how can we develop the self-control? If there are those that accomplish fitness goals through self-control, maybe we could try to learn self-control like them. We just have to set up living a holy life as our goal, like they set up fitness as their goal. That would be pretty simple. Well, in actuality, it's not that simple. If we could exercise self-control on our own, why did Christ come and die on the cross? If we could control our behaviors on our own, why did Christ, through the Holy Spirit, come to dwell within us? It is because we are not able to do self-control on our own. According to Jerry, we attain self-control when we give ourselves to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the power He provides. That means our thoughts need to be consistently immersed in God's Word, and we should persistently pray for the Spirit's fullness to control our behaviors. Biblical self-control is not about relying on one's willpower alone. It is about controlling through the power of the Holy Spirit. The answer is simple. Rely on the Holy Spirit, not on oneself. However, the crucial question is whether one truly desires to be that holy person without blemish and spotless before the Lord. 2 Peter 3.14 urges us to make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. If we understand that Jesus Christ has cleansed us from our sins through His sacrificial blood, we will inevitably maintain that spotless and blameless state by exercising self-control. How about you? Have you ever lost self-control and could not stop being angry when you knew you should have stopped? Have you ever experienced regret for not exercising self-control? Lack of self-control might not seem like a significant sin. Thoughts like, I watch a bit more TV or I overate a bit may come to mind. However, as Jerry emphasizes, if we lose self-control in simple things, it can eventually open the door to more significant sins. 1 Timothy 4.8 states that bodily exercise has some value, but godliness is beneficial in every way. For those who are concerned about their physical health, if they exercise self-control over their diet and lifestyle, it can contribute to their physical well-being. However, for us who focus on the health of our souls, practicing self-control in all aspects is essential. Why? It is because self-control is one of the nine fruits of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit who has been sealed within us prevails, the fruit of the self-control must undoubtedly manifest in our lives. If not, it implies that the Holy Spirit is not truly present within us. I hope you could take a moment to reflect on and examine your own life. As Galatians 5.22-23 states, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This concludes our session today from Respectable Sins.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.